1: Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com upgrade.
2: Let's say that, that Mr. Trump wins in November of 2024, uh, and he's either convicted or facing charges still it's going to be a real policy issue about whether Mr. Biden needs to pardon Mr. Trump. Nobody's talking about that, but let's say that that Mr. Trump is convicted of charges before November of 2024 and the voters just don't care and they, they elect Mr. Trump into office. Does the United States really want someone who's convicted and facing a sentence to be president? That That's going to be a real issue. So. It, this is, as I said in the, in the beginning, this is going to get more complicated before it gets easier.
3: I'm Natalie Orpet, executive editor of Lawfare, and this is the Lawfare podcast, July twenty fifth, twenty twenty three. Former President Trump is facing criminal charges in Florida and New York, and indictments are reportedly likely in Fulton County, Georgia, and Washington D.C. Two of these are in federal court; two of them are in state courts. Some have facts in common, some are seemingly unrelated. Trump is also involved in multiple civil litigations, and it looks like at least parts of these proceedings will be happening all at once. How does that work? I sat down with Brandon Fox, a partner at the law firm Jenner & Block and former chief of the criminal division of the Central District of California, to talk through how it may all play out. We talked about the challenges special counsel Jack Smith's office and state prosecutors will face, how Trump's lawyers will leverage those challenges, and what judges are likely to do in response. It's the Lawfare Podcast, July 25th, 2023. Can Trump be tried in four places at once? So, Brandon, the former president is, shall we say, facing a lot of different proceedings in court. Um, We have, interestingly, an overlap of a lot of different proceedings. So just to tick through them quickly, we have a civil fraud case against the Trump Organization in New York State Court going to trial in October, the E. Jean Carroll defamation case scheduled for trial in January 2024, The New York criminal case on falsification of business records, which is the Stormy Daniels hush money case set for trial in late March. Judge Cannon in the Mar-a-Lago classified documents case just set a trial for mid-May of 2024, but probably more importantly set interim deadlines, particularly for SEPA purposes as well in her scheduling order. Then last Tuesday, Trump announced that he had received a target letter from the federal grand jury in D.C., which typically indicates that an indictment is imminent. And there's also been reporting for months now that District Attorney Fannie Willis in Fulton County, Georgia, is pursuing a criminal prosecution there as well in connection with Trump's call to Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger, asking him to find 11,780 votes. And meanwhile, Trump is also running for president. So I want to talk through the confluence of all of these things. You were a federal prosecutor, and I'm wondering, in your experience, have you ever seen this many trials playing out all at the same time?
2: Certainly not of one individual. You would see businesses, not, not for criminal prosecutions, but businesses that are involved in a bunch of civil cases at one time. But when you have this number of criminal prosecutions it is really unprecedented, especially when you layer on everything between the state proceedings, the federal proceedings, the different prosecutors involved, and how there's they're going to have to be some negotiations between the federal judges if and when the second Jack Smith indictment comes down. So this is completely unusual. And that's not even been talking about. The last thing you said, which is that this is still somebody who's running for president.
3: Okay, so let's take each of these in turn. Um, we have a federal case in Florida coming out of special counsel Jack Smith's office. And as you mentioned, there is likely to be an indictment coming out of D.C., um, at least that is the signal based on the target letter that Trump announced. So in the past, there have been other instances where individuals are being federally charged in multiple jurisdictions. How does DOJ typically deal with that sort of situation?
2: Well, typically, you have different offices of the U.S. Attorney's Office that are charging these cases. And then there are some behind-the-scenes discussions about who should go first. Sometimes they involve main justice to try to have the main justice weigh in. But this is unusual because it will be different jurisdictions, presumably, with the same prosecutor, which gives them some control, not complete control, but some control over which one will go first. We saw special counsel Jack Smith's office decide that they wanted to push for a very early trial date with respect to the classified documents case in the Southern District of Florida, I would imagine that they're going to try to do the same thing if and when the second case is charged in in DC. And in that case, it may be that it's the one that they want to prioritize in terms of going first, because they're going to have some facts that they're going to be feel very strongly about. I think the law will have to see what they charge, but I imagine that there are going to be some straightforward laws that they charge that are common Federal prosecutions uh, compared to the case in the Southern District of Florida. And then you're going to have a jury that is probably going to be more appealing to the prosecutors in uh, D.C. than the one that potentially could happen in the Southern District of Florida. So that's what I would imagine would happen is that they're going to push for the earliest trial date in that case.
3: Okay. And do you make anything from the fact that the charges became public first in Florida?
2: I, I don't. I, I, I think that. They're they're just trying to probably bring the case when they feel that the case is ready to be brought, and uh, I don't I don't think anything should come from the fact that that case was brought first, other than. That's going to be a more complex discovery issue because of SIBA, as you mentioned, uh, trying to figure out what documents should be declassified or how to provide the defendant with the relevant material um, that they, so they can contest the issues. Uh, that is a more complicated case than you deal with in standard federal prosecutions. So the amount of discovery may be more in the second case than in the first one, but the, the level of complexity is completely different in the one before Judge Cannon.
3: Okay. And you had mentioned that because Jack Smith's office is running both of these, um, he will have some control on which goes first and how they proceed. What aspects will he not have control over?
2: certainly the judge and the judge's opinion on what should go first. Some judges do tend to push cases to trial quicker than others. So that is going to be one issue. And then you do have all these trial dates that are stacked one on top of another. I would imagine that most federal judges who might receive this indictment will respect other trial dates, even if they are civil cases, even if they're state cases, most federal judges won't want to put another trial date on top of that and make the civil case or the state case change out of just respect to that jurisdiction and that judge. So it's going to be hard to try to fit this case in before the presidential election. But it's I think that most judges will believe that if it can be done before then, that it should be before November of next year.
3: Does that mean, though, that whichever judge has sort of issued his or her scheduling order first will end up taking precedence over the others if they're all being deferential to existing calendar dates?
2: Yes. And this is where it's going to get complicated for Jack Smith's office, because if Judge Cannon believes that discovery has not gone in the way that she wanted it to go in order to keep that May date, then she's going to continue that date. She she has to as if there are discovery issues there. And it may be that a new judge has created a trial date that, let's say, is in July because they don't want to go before Judge Cannon's case or at the same time. And then Judge Cannon is going to have to push her date past that July date. And then you're talking about August, September, October. And you see how we're creeping up to the election just by trying to figure out where when these cases can go to trial.
3: And do you expect that same level of coordination to be happening both between the federal judges and the various state judges that may be involved here?
2: Well, I think one thing, if, if we can step away from the judges for a second, one thing that Jack Smith's office really needs to be careful of is communicating with the local prosecutors for both New York and uh, Georgia. Because if there's any communication there, I would imagine that Mr. Trump's lawyers will raise that as a way to show that these prosecutions are political. Not only saying that DOJ, which he's always argued, is prosecuting this case in a political manner, is now trying to put their thumbs on the scale of justice when it comes to Georgia and New York, but also the opposite. We've got a couple of elected district attorneys who are prosecuting those cases, and therefore they may be viewed more political. And having them be in contact with DOJ, again, is more ammo for Mr. Trump. So I think that Jack Smith's office has to be careful in dealing with the state prosecutors. And then when you talk about the judges, it is common For judges to either have something like a multi-district litigation in civil matters where they combine things and try to figure out schedules, there's not a system like that for criminal cases. So they are probably going to be communicating behind the scenes, I would imagine about their trial dates and making sure that everything's proceeding in the right way uh, and that they're not going to be stepping on each other's toes if they schedule a certain trial date. But things are going to get way more complicated instead of less complicated as we go forward because you know DOJ and the local prosecutors are going to have to be concerned about which case is the strongest, which is the one that is most likely to lead to a conviction because what no prosecutor wants is is to start out with a hung jury or an acquittal and then have another one where it's another hung jury or acquittal. It's going to taint the rest of the prosecutions, no matter who brings that first one. So this, And and then let's say that he gets convicted of one of these cases. Uh, Again, he's got a presumption beyond a reasonable doubt uh, that, that he's not guilty, but if he's convicted in any of these cases, then we are going to have sentencing hearings that will start. And We'll have judges that are going to have to decide whether they are going to sentence a person who is potentially the nominee for a major political party to jail during the election season. And that is going to be very complicated, along with to jail when there are potentially additional trials coming up. So this is going to be incredibly complex. And as I said to you before, this is unprecedented in terms of the sheer number of cases and uh, having this happen with somebody who's a real candidate for office.
3: Yeah, so there's a lot there. And I want to sort of take it step by step through the trials. So I have a sense of how the special counsel's office might make decisions. It's all internal. It will assess the cases. It may assess, for example, the the judge and the kinds of rulings that are happening along the way. You know, the, the Mar-a-Lago case is going to be complicated, as you said, because of sepa proceedings. The fact that sepa rulings can go up on interlocutory appeal, um, which may throw a whole other wrench in the schedule. But that sort of is within the special counsel's office to adjust accordingly if necessary as things are developing. But what exactly does the coordination to the extent it can exist given the concerns you mention? How does it work between state prosecutors and federal prosecutors in this case, Jack Smith's office?
2: It is so rare for us to be looking at a case like this that involves a public figure And in, you know, I did a lot of corruption work over my years and the corruption work is generally done when you're talking about somebody at this level, at these levels by federal prosecutors. And it's rare for there to be a separate state court proceeding at the same time there's a federal proceeding. So this is another reason why this is unprecedented. What you might see typically is there could be gang cases, for example, where you've got a federal RICO case, and then you've got something that is more of a a buyer of, uh, Illicit drugs in a state court proceeding. And then you don't really have to worry about coordination, or you might decide which one is is the easier case. I've had to deal with some of those issues when I was heading up the criminal division in Los Angeles for the U.S. Attorney's Office, where we were negotiating with the DA's office here over certain issues. One was a murder case, Another one involves some homicides related to legal t- drug distributions. And it can get complicated, too, because there are a lot of egos involved, a lot of people who feel very strongly about their cases as well. And everybody wants to go first. Everyone believes that they've got the strongest case and can make the most impact when they go first. So this is going to be a very, again, complicating factor for Jack Smith's office, because I would imagine that the New York prosecutors believe they've got a slam dunk case whether they do or not as a separate issue, but they're not going to want that March trial date to be budged, even if it's for Jack Smith's office in their best interest.
3: And what would you expect that coordination to look like in, in practical terms? Are we talking a, a phone call to talk about, to compare notes and try to coordinate on timing or try to convince the other prosecutor's office of the value of my case going first? Would it be continual calls as litigation proceeds and deadlines shift, what would you look for?
2: Again, this is where I, I see that there are some problems with Jack Smith's office doing it, because there are going to be arguments that there were political motives behind any contact uh, that, that happened. So it's going to be very complicated, even assuming that they decide to take that risk, that if uh, Mr. Trump's lawyers find out about it, that they won't go public with it and allege that it's more of a political prosecution and this is proof of it, then you do have to worry about how the lawyers are dealing with each other, how the prosecutors are dealing with each other, because they see the other side as having different motives than they do and they want to proceed forward with their case. So the first phone call would be telling to see if they can reasonably deal with one another and be aligned on it. And I've found over the years that it's really hard for that to happen because of those strong feelings and people tend to dig in and believe that they should do exactly what they want to do without bending it all to what another prosecutor wants them to do.
3: OK, and would you expect the judges in these different cases to be coordinating with each other as they are thinking through scheduling orders?
2: I would imagine that as we go forward, that that would happen At the initial stages where the trial dates are set, I don't think that that's going to happen because everything's already in black and white in these orders about when these trial dates are going to get set. Now, let's say that that a DC judge decided to set a trial date in July, and then Judge Cannon is deciding whether to grant a continuance. She may then, and, and the judge in DC, they may discuss how realistic is your July trial date and if it's realistic, how long do you think it's going to go? The prosecutors might have one thing that they've said to the judge about how long it goes, but judges have their own sense on how long trials are going to go. So I think as we get later in the game and closer to these cases actually going to trial, there will be more coordination, but at the beginning there won't be. And that, that's only on the federal level. I've never heard of a federal judge reading, reaching out to a state judge to talk about coordinating with them. Um, So we'll see if that happens here. I, I just don't know if that if it will happen, because, again, you've got to worry about what that's going to look like from the outside. And will there be criticism from the outside if that occurs?
3: Right. And so would you expect the same in terms of the fact that on the federal side, these are criminal trials and then there are state criminal trials, but also state civil proceedings happening?
2: Yeah, but it looks like at least now that the some of the civil proceedings will be done you're, you're going to have the October fraud case that hopefully will be done by the time that any trial dates are set for a new indictment. You've got the uh, Carroll case that is set for January that hopefully again will be done by the time any of these criminal cases are supposed to go. So if those dates stick, you can put those behind you. I don't expect that Mr. Trump will be too distracted by those cases because he wasn't distracted by the first defamation case. So uh, I, I would imagine that his focus is going to be entirely on running for office and preparing for his criminal trials.
3: Okay, so let's talk about the preparation aspect of things, because I think the the trial dates and the, the scheduling is very prominent in people's minds, but of course, the preparation, the discovery period, the pretrial litigation can cause a lot of different interim events, um, which I can imagine based on the fact that they are often unpredictable as to timing could get really messy in terms of overlap. So what would you expect, if, if anything, on how there may be coordination in those types of pretrial proceedings?
2: Well typically what you might see is there could be discovery disputes in one versus another here's where jack smith's office is actually on is in better shape than most times when there are might be parallel prosecutions that are going on because i would imagine that they're not going to be as concerned about discovery in terms of limiting discovery in one case versus another. I've seen it before where different districts have different ideas on what should be discoverable and what shouldn't be discoverable. And Jack Smith's office interests should be aligned there where they're producing things in both cases or in one case, knowing that his attorneys can use it for the other case. So that is going to help his office out. One thing that they're going to have to be very concerned about, however... Is if there are motions in limine, and they, the government loses motions in limine, they have the right to appeal those losses, just like you were talking about with the Sipa discovery, and it, they they then know that if they take something up on interlocutory appeal, that's likely going to push them past the election. And by the time the court decides the issue, kicks it back down to the district court, and they decide to try this case again unless they're able to have the appellate court rule on it on an emergency basis, and it's hard to imagine that a court would be receptive to that, then I think think they're going to probably just have to eat whatever ruling occurs and go forward even with more limited evidence that they might go forward with had it been a normal prosecution.
3: So in that sense, it seems really that the – Trial strategy, at least from DOJ's perspective, or I should say from Jack Smith's perspective, will be influenced by the compression of time and the need to coordinate. Is is there any other respect in which that's true?
2: Well, I, I think that the election also bears on this. I, I just can't imagine a scenario where he wants to go to trial, where his office wants to go to trial, or any prosecutor wants to go to trial after the November election that's just going to cause so many more issues. And really, the voter should know whether Mr. Trump's going to be convicted or acquitted of these cases by the time they go to the polls, assuming he's going to be the Republican nominee. So I think you've got to look at this in terms of just over a little over a year, a year in, in, in what is it, four or five months before all these cases should be resolved, or at least most of them should be resolved. And certainly the federal charges should be resolved. So that's got to be top of mind.
3: And you have to imagine that Trump's defense team is going to do its best to make sure that's not the case, um, if it is very much in their interest, as they've already argued, in fact, in the Mar-a-Lago case, that everything should be continued until after the election. So what other tactics might the defense use to try to delay things until after the election?
2: They're going to complain about discovery in two ways. First, I would imagine that they're going to complain about discovery because they're going to find holes in it or do their best to find holes in it and say the government hasn't turned over emails of certain people or audio or video of certain things and try to slow things down that way as they get closer to the trial date by saying we've asked for these items and the government has not given them up. Second thing that they're going to do might seem a little bit inconsistent with that, but they're going to say we're overwhelmed with discovery. There's going to be a lot of discovery, I would imagine, that is produced during this case. We'll see in the D.C. prosecution, assuming that it happens, what they want to do about all the audio and video from January 6th. Is that relevant? Is that something that should be produced? Is that something that will help the defense? All these things are uh, have to go through. heads of Jack Smith's office. And when you're talking about that, you're talking about a lot of evidence. And they will probably, as my guess, turn it over and say that it has marginal relevance and they're just turning it over in an abundance of caution. And then Mr. Trump will be able to go back to court and say, we've received all of these terabytes of data and we just can't get through it in time for our trial. So those are two ways that I think they're going to try to delay the trial. Some of it may be legit, some of it may not be. We'll just have to see what happens because it is really hard to prepare for trial if you haven't looked through all the documents. And of course, you can't prepare for trial if they haven't given you the documents you want.
3: And do you think a court will find that argument compelling?
2: It depends. We'll have to see, again, not knowing what the discovery is and what their plan is for discovery. Uh, Judges want defendants to be protected and to see everything that they're entitled to see have that ability to access it. So judges do try to bend over backwards for defendants to make sure that they've received the discovery that they should since it's a constitutional issue.
3: Right. And the judge is also, of course, going to have to think about the balance also that we've talked about between the election and running for office, perhaps even the interim aspects of the election, like the primaries, between that and the defendants' rights to discovery and, uh, of course, rights to be heard in all of their arguments. So how do you think a court will analyze that balance?
2: I think similarly to what Judge Cannon did, those are issues that take a backseat to the issues regarding when these other trials are going to happen and how do you get this case in before November of 2024, if possible. I think that it, that those are that's what the judges need to think about is how quickly can this go to trial where the defendant can be prepared for trial, defendant's attorneys can be prepared for trial and anything regarding the convention or primary season caucuses all of that has to take a back seat.
3: So it sounds like you are assuming that the court in both of these cases federal cases will also have at interest trying to get to trial and complete the proceedings before the election. Do you think that's a safe assumption?
2: Yes, if they reasonably can go to trial before the November 2024 election, I expect that to happen. But again, things happen at trial where all of a sudden you don't have the discovery, there was a mistake by the prosecution, they didn't turn something over, and then things have to be delayed. That happens all the time. There could be we haven't even discussed issues with the jury that that they choose. Any of these prosecutors choose, any any of the courts choose because you could have problems with the jury and then there's a hung jury and you've got to try the case again Um, or not even a hung jury. You could have problems with the jury where something happens where you have five alternates and all of a sudden you have to kick off seven different jurors and you can't have a jury anymore. You could have an argument that was not the right argument that a prosecutor should make. And all of a sudden you've got a mistrial. There are so many things that could happen wrong here where the trials, some or all of the trials are, are moved past the November election.
3: Right. And do you think the state court judges will also be thinking about the election?
2: I would imagine so. Although I, I would also say that we were talking about deference. And I would imagine that the state judges will be very deferential to the federal judges because we'll have to see what comes out of Georgia and what comes out of uh, the second potential indictment by Jack Smith's office but there's going to be some overlap there I would imagine and if Jack Smith's office's prosecution is broader than the Georgia one it has the same facts or similar facts and yet it's taking on a, a broader set of facts or laws that that should take precedence over the Georgia prosecution so If I were the state court judge, I would want to make sure that these federal cases go at the time that they need to go, even if that means pushing that case later. Because now you've got, with the supremacy clause and all sorts of issues, if the only cases that are brought to trial are the New York and Georgia cases before the November election, and then you're talking about a state imprisoning a major political candidate who might be be one of the nominees going into the November election – You've got some issues there, and and I think it's one thing if the federal government does that, but if a state does it, it's got some bigger issues. I'm not a constitutional scholar, but I, I think that that's going to complicate things greatly.
1: Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget?
3: J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.
0: Hey, Lawfare listeners, Ben Wittes here. I want to tell you about the first time I got and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20.
3: Yeah, so let's talk actually about the possibility, of course, we don't have either indictment yet, but the sort of reportedly expected indictments in Georgia and D.C., that, which, as you mentioned, seem likely to have overlapping facts. So I've been thinking about, you know, if you're the prosecutors and the defense— how do you coordinate the discovery process, or I should say, how do you plan the discovery process, given that you will presumably be getting similar, if not almost identical, discovery requests from both jurisdictions?
2: The discovery, they've got separate obligations. And the only ways that I've seen some coordination in that way is where there are similarities between who the investigators are. So if... One law enforcement agency is investigating the Georgia matter and also assisting Jack Smith's office with some aspects of it. Then you you might believe that there should be some discovery because they might all be considered to be one prosecution team. My guess, though, is that the office of the special counsel has separated things greatly so that they are not overlapping with Georgia, again, trying to not make it look like a political prosecution. And if that's the case, then there shouldn't be any coordination. And it may be at that point, and this is a little bit of a scary thing for prosecutors, is that the defendant has more information than the prosecutors have. <laughs> I think the prosecutors are going to have a boatload of information, but there there could be some discovery that the defense has that the prosecutors don't.
3: Right. And so separate from coordination, though, if you imagine, for example, the same witness being relevant to both prosecutions and so both sets of prosecutors wanting to hear from them, how would they plan knowing that there's sort of going to be competition over getting similar kinds of information, both on an expedited time frame?
2: So the the issue to me there is one more of uh – the type of evidence they're getting and the quality of evidence they're getting, because you're going to have potential inconsistent statements by witnesses. The more people speak, the more inconsistent they are. And it could be, this is another example of Trump's team having more weapons at their disposal because they have so many different statements by witnesses and the prosecution may not be aware of all of them. So that would allow Mr. Trump's team to be able to cross examine witnesses in a more effective manner. Um, And also when you see different law enforcement reports and different police officers or detectives writing reports in a way that might be different than the FBI might write things, then you have the ability to have additional cross-examination because of uh, the different ways. Again, people are writing their reports and then they can say, well, you told this agent this, you told law enforcement in Georgia something different. So this is going to be in some ways, helpful to Trump's team in order to have discovery from different prosecutions at their disposal. And again, especially if the Office of Special Counsel doesn't have it.
3: So talk through that in a little more detail, because it seems to me very complicated, but an excellent defense tactic to be able to sort of play these prosecutions off of each other. What would you imagine that could look like?
2: There could be some witnesses that received benefits in one proceeding and not in another. So one thing that could happen is that Jack Smith's office could have immunized somebody or Georgia could have immunized somebody in order to procure their testimony. And then and then there could be cross-examination over the benefits in one case that they received versus another and how they're testifying in a certain manner because of those benefits that they received, which is great for a defense attorney. You could also have a situation where Jack Smith's office decides to charge a limit in a limited fashion, let's say one, two or three defendants. And then here comes Georgia and they decide to charge 12, 13, 14 people, including some of the special counsel's witnesses. And now those other defendants in Georgia, the ones who are going to be witnesses in Jack Smith's case, have to decide whether they're going to invoke the Fifth Amendment, which they probably should if they're under criminal charges because Georgia charged them and Jack Smith's office didn't. So immunity, if Jack Smith's office offers someone immunity, that only applies federally. And same with the state court proceedings. So again, another way where this could be very complicated.
3: Yeah. And do you see that compromising the prosecutor's cases?
2: What I would think that a prosecutor would do is if you're Georgia and Jack Smith's office goes first, you may want to think about, you know, who to charge and, what you charge based on what Jack Smith's office charges, because you don't want to complicate his case too greatly.
3: Right. So that's another example of how the simultaneous proceedings really do shape the uh, prosecutor's decision making, right?
2: Absolutely. And you might have plea agreements that are in place as well with one office and not in another. Defense attorneys who are trying to decide whether to have their clients plead guilty, take cooperation deals, have to consider what other prosecutors are out there and what other charges their clients can face. So it's going to make things difficult for all sides.
3: And it seems to me that the, the defense's incentive is really to sort of sow as much chaos as possible because, again, the indication is that they will be trying to push things as best they can to after the election.
2: And I don't even know when you say so as much chaos, they've got so many resources at their disposal Be- because of the fundraising and, and the ability to use, at least to this point, those funds in their defense. They're able to file any motion that they want to file. They, they could provide the best defense that Mr. Trump could receive Base or that any defendant could receive because of the resources that are available to them. So that is a very much a boon to Mr. Trump. And he has the ability to fight this like no other defendant will be able to fight a series of prosecutions that he may be up against. Uh, but yes, they're going to do everything they can to delay the trials till after the election. Because of course, if it happens after November of 2024, it's gonna put let's say that that Mr. Trump wins in November of 2024 uh, and he's either convicted or facing charges still. It's gonna be a real policy issue about whether Mr. Biden needs to pardon Mr. Trump. Nobody's talking about that. But let's say that that Mr. Trump is convicted of charges before November of 2024 and the voters just don't care and they they elect Mr. Trump into office. It, does the United States really want someone who's convicted and facing a sentence to be president? That That's going to be a real issue. So it, this is, as I said in the, in the beginning, this is going to get more complicated before it gets easier.
3: Yeah. And if the sentencing hasn't happened yet, how does a federal judge contend with the fact that this person was just elected president? Exactly. So you mentioned all of the resources at the Trump defense team's disposal. And I'm wondering in that vein. You had also raised earlier the likelihood that the Trump defense will argue, you know, we were just overloaded with discovery. This is going to take a really, really long time to sift through. Therefore, we request a continuance. Do you expect that the special counsel's office would raise the fact of the Trump defense team's resources and argue that, in fact, they can get through all of this discovery? Is In other words, is the fact of these resources going to also impact the viability of different defense arguments?
2: Absolutely, they will raise it. And Trump's defense team will probably say, yes, we have all these resources available to us, But there really only are two or three of us that are going to be examining witnesses. And we need to see all these documents. And it's even though we have this great team behind us, it's really important that the ones who are going to be trying the case have access to them. So that that will be their response. But Jack Smith's office will certainly point out the amount of money that Mr. Trump is going to be spending on his defenses, the large team that he has. And they're going to say that he has the ability to get through all of this discovery.
3: And what would you expect a judge to say in response?:
2: I think it depends on when it's when the discovery is turned over. Uh, this is probably going to be a case where Mr. Smith's office, anything that's not classified with the second potential indictment, will the discovery will probably be turned over at, at the very close to the date of arraignment because they're going to want to be able to say that he had all this discovery available to him from the beginning. There could be some classified information and probably will be some classified information that's discoverable with respect to that prosecution as well. So there could be some SEPA litigation, maybe not to the same extent as in the Southern District of Florida case, but we'll we'll have to see what it is that they reveal uh, when it comes to that evidence.
3: What uh, classified material would you expect might come up in a D.C. prosecution?
2: since we haven't seen the charges, it's really hard to know, but it, it, it's going to be a, probably a couple of different things. Is there anything exculpatory in anything classified? Are there any defendant statements in anything that's classified? So if Mr. Trump is speaking on a channel uh, that is being monitored in, in a classified way, is, is that going to be something that they're going to say is either a statement by a defendant that needs to be turned over, potentially exculpatory, potentially inculpatory. So that's just one example. And then it could be that some of these witnesses, uh, if we're talking about high level witnesses within the Trump administration, are talking to foreign officials potentially or, uh, again, recorded on channels that are classified, then the the government's going to have to figure out what to do about that evidence.
3: So that may mean additional delays if there are SEPA proceedings and the associated interlocutory appeals that can happen In there. Yep, you're right. Okay, so we've sort of skipped around in terms of how trials progress and pretrial proceedings progress leading up to trials, but I did want to ask you about jury selection. So there's been a lot of discussion about the possibility that a jury in DC might be more amenable to the possibility of charging Trump than in Florida. And I'm just wondering for your general thoughts on that.
2: Yeah. In fact, uh, I think you had me write an article on that for you, Natalie, <laughs> the uh, the venue issues. And it is true. I mean, we're going to see a different jury pool in D.C., assuming that the charges are brought there versus the Southern District of Florida. And we're going to see something. I think it's like 90 percent in D.C. are registered Democrats, if I recall correctly. I haven't done my homework coming into this about uh, registrations, but it's much more mixed in the Southern District of Florida. And in some ways, that's a good thing, because then you see uh, that it will be a representative class of people from the entire country rather than just one sect. And I think that people will potentially accept justice more if he is convicted or acquitted in the Southern District of Florida versus if he's convicted in D.C. So um, that's going to be an issue that everybody has to think about when it comes to whether justice was done. That doesn't mean that either jury will have gotten it right or wrong. That just is how it's going to be perceived, I believe. So, uh, you know, when we're talking about Atlanta, when we're talking about New York, we're going to be talking about liberal juries compared to more conservative or mixed ones. So who's going to accept those results? Again, it's kind of still a political one because if we get to November of 2024, regardless of the number of convictions, if he's elected then the country is going to have to have a real sort of awakening about what what are we going to do with a pre- elected president who's been convicted of one or more charges.
3: I think it's interesting that you say the, the Southern District of Florida may be perceived as more credible. And it raises for me the question, too, of jury selection in these other jurisdictions. So might prosecutors, for example, be looking to Be sure that their jury pool is a little bit more representative. Would would this be a consideration in jury selection in a way that it wouldn't be in other cases?
2: Jury selection is going to be so difficult in these cases. Some judges, some jurisdictions have rules about what you can and cannot do. And that could be with respect to running a criminal history check on people could have to do with social media. And whether you're going to do it. it, it judges are going to make the dis- decision about whether to have an anonymous jury. And I've had an anonymous jury, a couple of anonymous juries before. And we're going, I mean, people feel so strongly about Mr. Trump one way or the other. It's hard to figure out what exactly a fair jury will look like. A jury that's fair to both sides would look like because of people's strong feelings. So we're going to have issues that come up t- even after the jury's been impaneled where maybe they didn't represent that they were fans of Trump or hated Trump and had these posts on social media one way or the other. I would just, if I were the judge, I'd probably have 12 jurors and 12 alternates or maybe even more because I would imagine we see a lot of attrition with the juries. This is, nothing about this case is simple. Jury selection and what's going to happen with the jury during trial and during deliberations is just going to be fascinating.
3: Yeah. And can you speak a little bit about your experience with anonymous juries? Because I don't think that's something that's come up very much for discussion.
2: Yeah. And so anonymous juries, I haven't seen anything written about it, but federal judges have the ability to pick anonymous juries and there's case law about when that should happen. And one of the things that the government, if the government wants an anonymous jury, and I would imagine that they would, but what they won't want is jurors to feel intimidated. If they're on the jury, they won't. And what they can look at is, does a defendant have a history of obstruction of justice? Or is there, are there going to be plausible threats to the jurors if their names are revealed? And you can already see the arguments being built in for the government. Once you start thinking about that, because the jurors and their families, no matter which side it's coming from, are going to be receiving a lot of communications and some that will feel intimidating for them. And then again, you've got the obstruction of justice that has already allegedly happened with respect to the classified documents. So there will be some real arguments for having an anonymous jury. Does that mean that they will remain anonymous and that nobody will figure out who they are? With a case that's going to, cases that are going to have this much scrutiny, it's hard to imagine that people aren't going to figure out who the jurors are. Uh, And it's so rare to have sequestration, but that's another thing that the judges are going to have to decide about sequestration. So, uh, you know, issues that judges are going to have to deal with, and I I don't know where they're going to fall out.
3: And how would an anonymous jury work in, in practical terms, especially given the sort of countervailing interest in public access, which we already know coalitions of the media are going to be pressing for very heavily?
2: Yeah, I, I mean, most of the time where there are anonymous juries, it's when there is a lot of scrutiny by the public. So the, well, while the media will come in and say, this jury shouldn't be anonymous, we have a right to access, we have a right to know who these jurors are. uh, this is one where I think there are strong arguments for for anonymous juries in the federal system. Uh, I don't know anything about the Georgia state law or New York state law about anonymous juries there, but in the federal system, I think there will be very strong arguments and the rights of the defendant, the rights of the government, I think are going to vastly outweigh the rights to the media about knowing who those jurors are. There will be demographic information that the media can write about potentially their ages, potentially their race. So it's certainly the race just based on observing them. But when you get down to what their name is, their occupations, where they work, you're getting into areas where they could be intimidated and their family members could be intimidated. So anonymous juries are, are definitely something I would consider if I were Jack Smith's office.
3: And just out of curiosity, what does that look like? You walk in the courtroom, do you see the jury, but you're just not informed of their names?
2: So if are you talking about if you're the, a member of the media or a participant in the trial?
3: I guess either.
2: Okay. So if you're a member of the media, the judge, it's it's a discretionary thing. So a judge may not allow the media to receive the sheets that trial lawyers do and the defendant will do, which will list – at least some information about the jurors, I would imagine the media would receive nothing that would tell you who the jurors are uh, and not have access to it, but instead, the participants, the litigants, and the defendant will see, receive these sheets that are printed out typically in federal cases that list a name of the of a juror, the race of the juror, occupation of the juror so, so some demographic information residence of the of the juror that that's available in most federal cases. And then in cases where there's an anonymous jury, you might not get their name. Again, it's discretionary to the judge. You might not get their age. You might not get their city of residence. You might not get their race. So the the judge can redact whatever information that the judge would like to redact. And then the more restrictive it is in terms of what the litigants are able to see, the better argument there is for a defendant for why they didn't receive a fair trial.
3: Okay. it, It just seems to me ironically thinking about the way in which prosecutor's office and the January 6th committee got evidence about the different participants in January 6th that's it's so easy to match faces with names and backgrounds just based on social media and sort of public source investigation is it even possible to imagine an anonymous jury if people if the actual jurors are visible
2: in federal courts There aren't supposed to be cameras in courtrooms. And that's why I also mentioned sequestration. So if there are no cameras in courtrooms, although phones make that a little bit more difficult, and and then you sequester the jury and really keep them on some form of lockdown so that they don't have any exposure to the public, you might be able to do that. Now that's kicking the can down the road because somebody might recognize a juror. The juror might've said something to their family about them being on on the jury, and then their family is tweeting about it or posting something about it on social media or talking to somebody who does it as well. So at least initially, it might help out in the long run, we'll, we will probably find out who all of these jurors were. And in the long run, the, some of them might even want to be exposed and go on national media and, and talk about their experience and write books on it.
3: Okay, and there's one other thing that I'm curious for your thoughts on. I think it's probably a bit far fetched, but given that these are criminal trials, the so far the government um, has not requested any confinement, pretrial confinement, or other conditions. At least in the Mar-a-Lago case, there hasn't been anything either in New York. But in theory, in both Georgia, I presume, though I am not super familiar with Georgia criminal procedure. And in a potential D.C. indictment by the special counsel's office, the prosecutors could ask for some sort of conditions on Trump prior to trial. And I was thinking about this in the example of Paul Manafort when he was being charged in two different jurisdictions. He actually had two separate ankle bracelets, one from the Eastern District of Virginia and one from D.C., which is a little bit silly, but came about because of the simultaneous federal proceedings. So I'm wondering if you think, as far-fetched as it may be, whether there may be any complications relating to pretrial conditions on Trump.
2: I think the only way that you will see it is if he's indicted in Georgia and a judge there has some restrictions, because Jack Smith's office has already spoken in the Southern District of Florida and said, basically, there should be no restrictions. I, I can't imagine they take a different tact in in the any DC prosecution that may happen, and you're not going to see Mr. Trump with an ankle bracelet. I, I any at any phase, you will never see him with an ankle bracelet. He's he's the most recognizable figure potentially in in the world, and the ankle bracelet really only does certain things. If you talk to somebody who is with probation, they will say that it doesn't help you in terms of risk of flight. Judges do it all the time, but it really doesn't help you in in terms of risk of flight because by the time they realize you've cut the ankle bracelet, the the person has already fled. And and again, I don't think we're talking about with Mr. Trump, somebody who's going to flee because he's so recognizable. But then it comes down to, you know, danger, danger to the community is usually the reason why, like the the valid reason why probation will talk about why somebody should have an ankle bracelet, because it will tell you where they are. And if they cut it off, and then something happens, and they can link the defendant to the crime, then, then then you have a pretty good idea who it was. So anyway, so 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 I don't, I don't think we're going to be talking about an ankle bracelet for Mr. Trump. So let's say that in the judge in Georgia says you must stay in the state of Georgia, (laughs) then then we'll see an appeal there that that seems to not be a restriction that makes a lot of sense. And, you know, but but as it's closer to all these trials, and if let's say that he is convicted in one of these cases, and the judge then has more restrictive conditions, because he's convicted, it could cause some issues with respect to his campaigning, because they may want to limit his ability to go to a bunch of different states. And uh, at some point, a judge may decide that he should be behind bars if he's convicted. And then you were going to have actual like physical restrictions on where he's able to go. So I don't think anything pretrial, Natalie, is going to happen. But again, just like everything I've said, it gets more complicated if we go down the road.
3: Right. And I, I, I do agree. I think there is no chance that ankle bracelets will be involved here. But perhaps a better and possibly realistic example is if um, Trump is – given some sort of gag order that he's, um, you know, there have been instances in the past where he has done things that, for example, the January 6th committee said constituted obstruction of justice, though they are, of course, not a court. But he has been known to do things that are construed or seen as obstructive. And he has used his social media in ways that people have found problematic. So it doesn't seem totally impossible to me that a judge may wish to impose some sort of gag order. How do you think that would work given the other proceedings happening?
2: I, I don't think it's going to be like a gag order. I think I think what it'll be is framed like you mentioned before, which is can't obstruct justice, can't tamper with witnesses, something like that. He he knows that he can push the line as far as he wants to, almost as far as he wants to push it uh, because he keeps doing it. And he there, to date have not been any repercussions so he's going to continue to push that and calling you know jack smith a thug if there's there aren't going to be many defendants ever prosecuted that are going to go after a prosecutor like that publicly i know of one who's ever done that before and it didn't turn out well for for him so i just don't think that he's gonna at all think that a judge will lock him up pre-trial if he's going out there and doing the things that he's always done. I think there's only really one judge who could do something, at least out of the charges that, that we know right now who could restrict him in a way that, people generally will respect if she does it. And that's Judge Cannon. And that's because of her ruling that she's a, she's a Trump appointee. She had the ruling earlier regarding the taint review that was favorable to Mr. Trump. And if he was out there doing things that were obstructing justice and she then makes that finding and then restricts him somewhat, I think that's the only way that the public will generally will think that that was not a political decision.
3: So we've gone through a lot of different examples of all the things that might go wrong, a sort of parade of horribles, as we might say in law school. Um, I'm wondering, to wrap it all up, what would you say you're looking for as the most likely points of tripping up either uh, Jack Smith's office's prosecution or prosecutions or any of the other proceedings that are happening or may happen?
2: It's going to be discovery. Discovery is going to be the reason why either wasn't turned over quickly enough, it wasn't turned over extensively enough, or the defendant didn't have an opportunity to review all of the discovery. Those are, those are really going to be the issues. And and again, SIPA we've talked about making that a more complicated subject. So uh, I think discovery is really the thing that's going to be pushing things pre-trial. And then it's going to be, can you actually get 12 jurors anywhere to agree on a verdict? So I, you know, we, we may never, we'll have to see, we may never get a verdict in any of these cases, given how politically charged everybody is right now, and how much of a lightning rod Mr. Trump is, you could probably go anywhere in the country and grab 12 people. And you're, you're probably not going to find a jury that's going to agree, no matter how strong the facts are, weak they are, how strong the law is for one side or the other. I just, I, I it's, these are going to be very difficult prosecutions and very difficult defenses if the goal is to have him be acquitted.
3: So given that, do you think these prosecutions are a good idea?
2: The the old principle that no man is above the law, it has to be applied. And I believe that the prosecutors think that he violated the law many times over, and that he needs to be held accountable. So I think that if you're not going to prosecute Mr. Trump for the facts that are out there right now, there would be that people would believe that there are two systems of justice. So you need to go forward these prosecutions, despite how difficult of prosecutions they will be.
3: All right. I think that's a great place to leave it. Brandon Fox, thank you so much for joining us.
2: Natalie, it's great to talk to you.
3: The Lawfare podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare podcasts by becoming a Lawfare material supporter at lawfaremedia.org support. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Look out for our other podcasts, including Rational Security, Chatter, Allies, and The Aftermath, our latest Lawfare Presents podcast series on the government's response to January 6th check out our written work at lawfaremedia.org. The podcast is edited by Jen Patia Howell, and your audio engineer this episode was Noam Osband of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thank you for listening.